Independent talk. talk. News talk. Talk radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. With the self-appointed revolutionary of reason, Mike Graham. On talk radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio at the start of yet another week of war in Western Europe. Yeah, I know that might sound glib, but it's not actually glib. We are still in the midst of a war in Western Europe. Since we last spoke, the Russian military machine has been stuttering in Ukraine while still managing to target more and more civilians. Again, some of the video uh, footage that we've seen over the weekend has been heartbreaking, dreadful, absolutely ghastly. But as ever, the truth of what is happening on the ground is as difficult to discern as it ever was. We saw over the course of the weekend some footage of Sky news reporters and news producers being shot at by Russian soldiers. And thank goodness they all managed to get out safely. But that is how dangerous covering wars actually is. And that is how difficult it is to get at the truth, to find out precisely what is going on. What we do now know uh, is that 1.5 million people have so far fled the country into Poland and points west. And there are bound to be hundreds of thousands more over the coming days and weeks. So far, the Home Office is being accused of not really coping with that terribly well in this country. That obviously needs to improve. And coming up this morning, we're joined by Tom Hunt MP with his take on the events of the past week and where he thinks we go from here. I'll also be asking him about the price of fuel, which is going through the roof while the energy crisis goes on unabated. We're on a crusade this morning to find out where the most expensive petrol stations actually are and why they're setting their prices so high. Diesel and petrol is literally going through the roof. At the moment, uh, the top uh, most expensive place we've found so far is a BP station in Newcastle where they're charging 181.9 pence a litre for diesel. So that, I have to say, is absolutely utterly out of control. What is the government going to do about it? What can they do about it? And why are the customers being absolutely screwed in the way that they are? 0344 499 Coming up later on, we've got Peter Hitchens with his take on how he could see this war coming many years ago when he visited Sevastopol in 2010 and witnessed the rise of Ukrainian nationalism. Peter has got a controversial view about what's going on in Russia. He doesn't think that it's right to completely and utterly just blame Russia. Uh, Robert Clark is also here from Civitas. He'll give us his intelligence on how the Russian advance is going and just why things are not going exactly to plan for Vladimir Putin. We'll also hear from Howard Cox and Angela Levin on fuel duty and why the Queen is moving out of Buckingham Palace. And as ever, of course, we do need to hear from you. You can text us at 87222. You can tweet us at Talk Radio at IROMG. Do tell us what you're paying for your petrol to tell us what you're paying for your diesel and why on earth it is costing so much money to just drive around you're listening to me mike graham right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet it is of course talk radio the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio without further ado uh, we can welcome tom hunt into the studio tom a very good morning to you morning, morning. thank you very much indeed for joining us i mean we have to start obviously with what's going on in Ukraine. It was another pretty torturous and, and, and awful looking weekend there. People uh, getting shelled in, in their homes. People getting attacked as they were trying to leave a safe corridor, supposedly. More and more people coming over the border in uh, in Poland. Um, what's your sort of take on, on, on how it's been going for the past few days? Well, I think it's, it's been going, um, I guess, well in, in the sense that um, the, the, the heroism of the Ukrainian people and army have meant that the Russian Putin has not advanced as much as I think he probably would have imagined. Mm. But obviously devastating in as much as the, the, the loss of life, particularly from civilians uh, and those who are 100% innocent. Um, I met with four of my own constituents uh, on Friday. One in particular, one conversation in particular I remember from that meeting. Uh, and my constituents' entire family are currently in Kharkiv, which mm. has been... Surap, close to being surrounded by the Russians and on Friday she said to me that she wanted me to raise in Parliament the importance of humanitarian corridors therefore to open the newspapers on Sunday to see that there'd been humanitarian corridors agreed uh, facilitated by the Red Cross and then seemingly um, abused and yeah. disregarded at a later date by the Russian army I think is, is deeply concerning. We cannot rely upon Putin and the Russian army um, really in any regard to show any kind of to play by any kind of rules. And I think that's what's so scary and so um, disturbing. So yes. yes, on the one hand, you know, it's great heroism by the Ukrainian people and army. But on the other hand, there is nothing good or anything other than tragic about the sheer loss of life and the destruction being caused. And there doesn't seem at the moment, I mean, to be any kind of possible end to it. I mean, there's talk of peace uh, conversations. There's talk of sitting down around tables. There's talk of, 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 you know, certainly from the Ukrainian side, 
some kind of um, um, deal, but yet nothing ever seems to happen. And, and it's, as you say, it's difficult to kind of figure out what it is that Putin actually wants out of all of this. I, I mean, he, I, I suspect what he's really after is a is a sort of um, Belarus 2.0. He's, he's after a, a sub, 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 subservient mm. neighbouring state who will never again look at the West, never again uh, think about closer allegiance with the West. And he essentially would like a compliant mm. regime. So I guess it might come to a point where he thinks he's secured that kind of puppet regime. Yes. And then he might pull back and say, look, this is, this is Ukrainian independence, mm. but when, it, when of course we know it's anything but. Right. I guess that's probably his aim. Right. I, I don't think he wants to annex it. I think he wants to have something equivalent to Belarus. Right. Or, but in order to do that, he has to kind of beat the Ukrainians into submission, which doesn't look very likely, does it? I don't think it does. Um, I, I don't think it does look likely, but we have to bear in mind the, the numerical strength that he has. Um, I think the Prime Minister made some very um, good points this weekend about never, ever, ever allowing any of this to become normalised. And I think that's a fair point to make because what we've seen over the last few weeks is far worse than anything we've seen from a Putin regime since its, since its formation. But I do remember Georgia and I do mm. remember the previous incidents and yeah. us being horrified at the time. Yeah. And then with the way the news is and the way our lives are, we kind of forget about it. Yeah. I mean, but, I remember Georgia. I remember South Ossetia. And I remember thinking, yeah. I've never heard of this place before yeah. at all. And I never remember thinking of it as a European sort of nation. Yeah. Whereas with Ukraine, you kind of feel like it's very much part of us, very much it, part of Europe. And it feels almost like it could be Vienna to me. That that is that is a, that is a good point, and what is happening, um, I see as being being worse. However, you know what happened in 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 Georgia was still shocking, and I remember the images of what happened there, and I remember kind of how we all just sort of moved on. We we must never move on from what's happened over the last few weeks, and we must never um, remove our our foot from Putin's um, throat, for want of a better metaphor. Yes, uh, and we should never take the heat off him, and we should ensure that. He, the price that he pays for what his actions over the last few weeks means that it, it is the beginning of the end of the beaten regime. That, yeah. mu- that must be our aim. I think whatever happens, whether he manages to somehow gain control of the country, whether he does manage to get rid of Zelensky and put in some kind of puppet, or whether he fails, I think you're right. I don't think there's much much left for him back in uh, in, in. We need Kremlin. to ensure that the price that he pays is is overwhelming yeah. because the greatest risk is that you know he pays a bit of a price but yeah. not a, not which a brings us I suppose yeah. on to what the British government has done and, and I yeah. have to say I've been very critical of Boris Johnson over the course of the last few months I think he's come out of this looking pretty statesmanlike um, and actually I think has become I don't know the old Boris Johnson maybe we've got him back um, I think he's performed very well in the last few weeks and, and I have to say that there's been colleagues who I've spoken to in Parliament last week, who only three or four weeks ago were probably the most vocal in, in trying to get rid of it. In, in expression, well, dis- I mean, I think last maybe yeah. last but one time that you and I spoke, you know, I was going, why is he not? Why is he still there? You know, I, I think I think that something like this really does just mean that we, we put things in perspective as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was knocking on doors over over the weekend, and you know, that was the sense I was getting from a lot of my constituents that. Frankly, you know, what's more important, getting a big cause right on something like this, getting a big cause right on something like COVID or this other thing. And I'm not downplaying the other thing. Mm. I'm not downplaying it, by the way. I was angry about it. But I think that he has performed very well over the last two or three weeks. And I think he's shown our country in a very good light. Listen, I think that an awful lot of Conservative voters would be happier to see the Conservative Party doing what they voted them in to do. Um, you know, notwithstanding what's happening with Ukrainian refugees and all of that, you know, stop the, the people coming here illegally on boats, which yeah. you've been very vocal about. Stop the net zero cr- crusade, which appears to be on the wane as well. I mean, there's talk this morning that Boris is going to kind of abandon it altogether for the moment, as we see Germany, you know, starting up their nuclear power plants and possibly going back for coal, because, you know, we've become too reliant on gas from foreign fields, haven't we? Um, um, yes, I mean, I, I think that's... Um I did see the Prime Minister's remarks this morning. Um, he hasn't abandoned uh, the, the, the net zero. Well, he aim, should. Um, but he has said that we need to be pragmatic about yeah. it, certainly in the short term. Yeah. Uh, and, yes, I, I think... In well, the, I mean, when you see Elon Musk saying it's time to go back to diesel and petrol because we can't sustain electric cars at this moment in time, yeah. you begin to wonder whether there's any point. I think the concern is that if we rush headlong into this... Um, and we sort of prioritise that over everything else. Yeah. And we get to a point maybe in 10 years' time where we're not making as much progress as we thought we could have done. And all of a sudden we rush, we panic, and we go for the easy option, yeah. which is 
um, relatively cheap imports from places like Russia. Yeah. So oh, I, think, I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, these two things are not unrelated. You know, Russia has made yeah. an absolute fortune over the past decade or so by selling its gas to Western Europe, mostly yeah. to Germany, to, to a large extent to I, I must many say, other countries. I must say, I think that with regards to shale, um, like I, I, I get there's a debate there, but I do think that you know the decision, the thing that is probably going to happen this month, which is that two potential outlets of shale gas are going to be permanently sealed off, yeah. I, I think should probably be looked at yes um i think we need to look at the north sea and i think also canada and us i think you know i think the prime minister was saying today that they could do more to produce more gas because right. actually ourselves we're not hugely dependent on russian gas no. but germany but is, the fact is we still are determined to make, yeah. get most of our, our, our electricity and gas from com- companies owned by european nations effectively so you know whether or not we actually directly benefit yeah. from russian gas we're still taking gas and electricity from foreign companies who probably do get a lot more of their stuff from from yeah. Russia. So it's a sort of it's a vicious circle for yeah. me. I think this is a, look, I think this is a big issue. I saw the um uh, Nigel Farage's uh, piece in the um Mail on Sunday yesterday and I think he's you know fair enough for raising the points for these raised and I think that you know as a government we've got to take stock of what's happened in the last few weeks what that means for energy security yeah. what it means for geopolitics uh, and I think we've got to we've got to set the right course you know climate change is important, but yeah. at the same time, we're going to be. It's pre- not very important if, you, if you're currently living in Kharkiv, you know, uh, Ukraine's second city, and you're getting yeah. shelled by some maniac uh, who has been uh, who's charging up his tanks with diesel. Yeah, well, exactly. There you go. You know. So we, we, we've we've got to. Uh, when, when I'm thinking energy at the moment, I'm thinking energy security. I'm thinking geopolitics. That's yeah. what I'm thinking. Yeah. Uh, but don't you think the West, as a general rule, has to learn an awful lot more from from all of this? You know that we have become well, well, weaker. I, I think, Our military I, I, has been allowed to be I denuded. Think, look, I mean, I think I think there's there's a, there, there is an argument, and I read a piece in the Times yesterday about how you know Putin perceives the West as becoming overly decadent, complacent. Yeah. He's not wrong. Uh, is I, mean, he? I mean, I read sort of newspaper articles about there being a debate about whether leather boots should be banned in the army because yeah. they offend vegans. Right. Uh, I think to myself, is that really something we should yeah. be um, wasting our mental energy on? Uh-huh. Probably not. Right. Um, so you know, I think. I think we've got to start believing in the West again, the values of our country, the values of the West, and stop doing ourselves down, stop doing down our allies, and start thinking, yes, Britain and America may not be perfect, also, there may have been we, mistakes, but compared with stop... Putin, compared with other countries, yeah. you know, we are far better. And in, if we don't show leadership to have some confidence in ourselves, then the future is not the West. The future is regimes, autocrat, autocracies such mm. as Putin and China, and we're going to we're going to we're going to slide from relevance. And I think we need to be confident in in ourselves, confident in our country, right. confident in our values, um, and you know push back against a lot of the nonsense we've seen, which does matter because it's been distracting our focus. Well, it's been distracting our focus. It's been going for such a long time that we've become kind of immune to to, to what its effects are, and without noticing, we have suddenly become this very weak, flabby kind of organisation, um, which needs to stop that and needs to stop navel gazing and eating itself from inside. I, yeah, yeah, no, I agree. You know, I, I think I think, for example, you know, we, we uh, you know, we need to be proud in our country, proud in our values, and proud of the role we play. Yeah. You know, and and um, and we got to we got to we got to we got to stand up for the values in the world. And I think if we don't, we can't expect anybody else to. No, exactly right. Tom Hunt is here. Uh, we've got calls to take. We've got people to talk to. We want information from you as well, of course. Today, oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. I'll tell you why. Uh, we're trying to find out where the most expensive petrol and diesel is actually being sold because we're going to be asking questions later on with Howard Cox from Fairfuel UK as to why some of these station forecourts are charging just as much money as they are. Oh three four 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 nine. Nine one thousand. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. The microeconomics of rational debate. Arguments all round. A radio station, not a panic station. Translate and decode the issues of the moment. Talk Radio. Now available on TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Peter Hitchens coming up in a little while. He'll be telling us about why he saw all of this coming uh, when he visited Ukraine in 2010 uh, and saw the rise of Ukrainian nationalism. It's quite a controversial view on the whole situation. And I don't think by any means he's trying to make out that for some reason that justifies Russia's actions because it doesn't. Um, But at the end of the day... Lots of us are having to feel uh, the pain of what's going on in Ukraine uh, in all sorts of different ways. And one of those ways is the amount of money we're having to pay, not just for our energy prices uh, and the cost of heating the home that you live in, but also the cost of running a car. Tom Hunt is here with us, uh, Conservative MP, of course, for Ipswich. Tom, um, I've been running this since last night, asking people to tell me where 
they're finding the most expensive petrol and diesel up and down the country. And it seems to differ depending on which actual petrol station and which company you're dealing with. I've got one here uh, from Chile who says just outside of Glasgow, it went up from 155 the day before to 173 in 23, uh, 24 hours. How is that even possible? I mean, it seems to me there's a lot of profiteering going on here. Well, it does seem over the last, I mean, we knew that the prices were high, but it does seem that over the last few days there's been a real spike. I mean, I last time I filled up my car was on was on was on Friday Friday morning, uh, and it and it and it wasn't like it wasn't as bad as that. Right, it's petrol. Um, I think it was I think it was BP on the A14. Okay. Um, but I'm, I, I, you know, with, with spikes like that, I'm sure I'll be, I would have received some emails over weekends from constituents ex- explaining. But yeah, I think the worst is a one pound eighty. I think one pound eighty one. We've got somewhere up in Newcastle. Newcastle. So I mean, if you yeah. see anything more than that, do tell us. But it yeah. seems incredible that they can just sort of set whatever price they want because yeah. presumably at some point. Um, the price of oil will go up again. And at yeah. the moment, it's actually cheaper than it was back in 2008 when yeah. it was uh, at, a, at a sort of record price. And cheap and petrol was actually cheaper then. Well, I mean, I think I think the, the government uh, does deserve some credit over repeated years for, for freezing fuel duty. I mean, but I take the point that even bearing in mind that we've done that, it does seem very high, particularly compared with other countries. Mm. It's absolutely the last thing we want to be happening at the moment yeah. because it is, as an issue, it does feed so much into cost of living, everyday cost of living. Well, of course, for because presumably for, 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 for anybody who's who's driving trucks around the country, yep. that makes everything more expensive, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the um, you know backbone of our country, people were going out every day, you need to use their van, need, need to use their car, this is hitting them mm. uh, at the same time as other prices going up. So it's absolutely the last thing we want to be seeing. Right. Uh, and, and if there's something we can do or something we can look at to do with how a system works that we can try and avoid these kind of random spikes, yeah. uh, then that'd be good. But yeah, I mean, it does seem, I mean, we, we knew prices were high, but it does seem over the last two or three days, for whatever reason, it has shot up. Yeah, uh, it does and seem and as though not, a lot of petrol stations are just, are just seeing this as an opportunity to make even more money because we saw, did we not, just before I, all of this stuff happened in Ukraine, massive profits being made by companies I, I like think, BP and Shell. I think what we wouldn't want to see is obviously there are these sort of like, global factors that, that link in with the price and cost of various items yeah. but what we wouldn't want to see is various companies perhaps trying to hide behind that use that as camouflage yeah. for trying to make decisions about their own profit margin mm. so look, we need to look at that if there is any foul play we need yeah. to get on top of it right. um, I think that's important that we do and the government this week is going to be looking more at the sort of oligarchs and, and the yeah. crime bill that's going through to try and withdraw some of the money that they've got i mean i'm not sure how it's working in terms of how effective it is in terms of whether putin is bothered by it but when you see sort of super yachts being seized in all sorts of places like monte carlo and, and hamburg you do wonder whether that's just for show don't you yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to take a cheap pot shot at Chelsea fans for their Roman Abramovich <laughs> anthem no. against uh, Burnley on Saturday. But look, I mean, generally speaking, I'm I'm pro us being as hard as we can be on anyone who's been close to Putin and anyone who's made money a, 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 as a result of mm. their relationship with Putin. So I mean, I, and there is going to be a bill. There are going to be laws passed this week on this topic. I understand that there could be an amendment to do with um, protecting journalists who who are doing work to reveal. Yeah information right. about certain individuals who are being threatened by law firms yeah so i think you know, that sounds very sensible and i think i'd be very happy to support that it, you know if it's the right thing to do and the law is the right one but i mean clearly this is absolutely needed you know you know anyone who's been you know made money on the backs of the you know their relationship with putin and the russian people i i i think that but there are also going to be people who make money from other um you know what you might call dictatorial regimes such as saudi arabia such as qatar which are all over london aren't they and uh, China, to be honest, there's an element of that. But right now, Putin, you know, as far as I'm concerned, is enemy number one. Yeah, yeah he's, an, he's an appalling individual, and I think anything we can do to hit his cronies, the better. Mm. You know, and I think we need to be turning the screw as much as possible. And what's your understanding of how it's affecting, say, ordinary life, day-to-day life in Moscow? Because I hear yeah. various different reports where. Many people in Russia, I and mean, we've got a, a gymnast this morning um, who's got the Z um, symbol on his chest, which is the sort of pro-Putin symbol, winning a, a medal in a gymnastics, uh, presumably in the Paralympic Games, uh, standing next to somebody from Ukraine, very proudly showing that they're backing Putin. So there's an awful lot of Russians who are very anti the West, but the way that we're behaving. Um, I think that, that, that there will be some uh, Russians who, who may think like that way, that way, but I think it's also important to recognise the number of Russians who have been risking their own life 
protesting uh, yes. in Moscow against the Putin regime. Mm. And, and we have seen those very uplifting sides of brave Russian individuals mm. taking a stand against Putin. Um, so um, there's also, I mean, it's a huge country. There's going to be a, a huge number of people. And there's going to be a huge number of different views. But I, I don't, I wouldn't want to get into a situation where, you know, anyone who's Russian or anyone who's got a Russian sounding name is inherently dodgy. No. Uh, well, let's and, face and, it. I mean, there are plenty of people who came to this country who have got lots of money um, who've came here to be, get away from Putin because yeah. they were not allies of Putin's. Yeah, I mean, there's one, there's one individual in particular who I think is actually Ukrainian but has a Russian sounding name. Oh. Uh, who is, I think, giving some donations to various Conservative MPs right. and, and sort of the Labour Party being it, they're some a twist over this. Yes. You know, I, I mean, frankly, other than the fact that he is ethnically Russian, right. I'm not really sure what he's supposed to yeah. have done wrong. Well, it's similarly um, with uh, with Abramovich, actually. I mean, yeah. where, where Keir Starmer got up at question time, Abramovich yeah. questioned last week and said, why has he not been sanctioned? Well, it's easier said than done. You can't yeah. just go around sanctioning anyone because they happen to be Russian, can you? Well, I think, I think Roman Abramovich has got has, has had closer ties with Putin throughout the course of his, and I, I suspect that his relationship with Putin has had an influence on his. It may well have done, but that's in a way not a legal was... position that you can argue in a court of law, though, where you say we're going to now seize all of these uh, assets of this man because we don't like his friends. Well, I, I, think... I mean, that's not the way the law works, is it? No, but I mean, there'll be specifics around his case about right. what we can and can't do. I have to say, I'm not all over the legal right. detail there. Um, but but um, what I'm saying, I suppose, yeah. is that you know it's all very well for Sir Keir Starmer to go well, it, ranting on about how we should be locking people up and sort of you yeah, know arresting them yeah, and yeah, all of that, and that's what yeah. feeds into this anti-Russian kind of feeling. I, I'm, I think it, I think it, I think it probably does. But to, to be perfectly honest with you, I mean that is, that is what Keir Starmer does every Wednesday. Yeah. So perhaps I've just become slightly <laughs> accustomed to it, but I don't really see anything that you know. Uh, but. Um, you know, I mean, I think he was saying yesterday that he wanted to withdraw his call for a prime minister to resign in the name of unity, oh, yeah. only to reverse his position about half an hour later. Right. You know, so you know, this is what we did. He's got an interesting definition of the word unity. He, isn't I, he? I do find it quite funny when he says that you know he doesn't want to play politics right. when he does nothing other than That's all politics. He does. It's all he did for yeah. the pandemic, and right. I think he's continuing to do so at the moment. And he still hasn't crisis. told us what he's done with all that money that the Chinese gave to Barry Gardner and the Labour Party. Well, I've gone very um, um, Beijing Barry, I think. It's Beijing Barry. Beijing Barry. That's yeah, him. That's, I mean, that's his nickname now. Yeah. He doesn't know what happened to the money either. Well, it's funny, isn't it? They've gone incredibly quiet. I mean, if somebody gave me half a million quid, I think I'd remember what I did yeah. with it. Don't you? Well, I can understand why I didn't particularly want to talk about it. <laughs> exactly right. Tom, good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Tom Hunt there uh, talking to us about a great many things. Let us uh, take your calls on it as well. 0344 Don't forget, what we need from you uh, is some information on what exactly is going on out there on the streets of this country. Exactly how much money are you being charged for all of the things that you're doing? This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. In search of the perfect debate. Listen online. Watch it live on your smart TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Peter Hitchens coming up at 11 o'clock, of course. He's always got an interesting take on what's going on uh, in anything uh, to do with the Russians and anything to do with Ukraine. Um, he wrote a piece at the weekend about how he visited there in 2010 and saw the rise of Ukrainian nationalism and saw uh, that that was probably going to be a problem in the future. And so, of course, it has now proved to be. Some terrible footage coming in over the course of the weekend of uh, civilians being uh, strafed with uh, with bullets and and shot at by Russian soldiers. We've got lots of pictures of uh, government buildings being attacked, but also we've got lots of pictures of, of private civilian buildings, flats, blocks of flats being blown up as well. Kharkiv is a bomb site, uh, the second biggest city in Ukraine. Rob Clark is here now. He's from Civitas. Uh, he's going to tell us what he makes of the uh, problems that are going on there and why it is that Russia and the forces that they've got are having so much trouble kind of breaking through. Robert, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. It does seem as though the Russians are not getting everything that they want and they're not getting their way as much as you might expect them to. No, certainly. I think over the um, the first few days of the invasion uh, two weeks ago now was quite successful in terms of the amount of territory that Russia were making across three axes of advance, which right. was uh, quite complicated. Um, but then certainly over the last sort of week, the last four or five days, we've seen that um, advance almost ground to uh, a near complete halt. Um, so, for example, in the south, just... Uh, just around Crimea, um, it's probably the most um, ambitious in terms of their their, uh, their, their advance. But certainly around uh, the city of uh, Kiev itself now is almost ground to a complete halt. Yeah. Um, and again, the cities in the east, you just mentioned Kharkiv, um, they're resorting to much more 
um, you know, drastic and, and bloody uh, measures uh, regarding uh, trying to take ground, including right. the shelling of innocent civilian areas. Right. I've heard over the weekend that the Americans might be getting a bit more involved and they might be providing more kind of air mm. defences possibly to, uh, to Ukraine so that it won't be so much about putting up a no-fly zone, but maybe giving them some Patriot missiles, that kind of thing that were used to such a great effect by Israel in the Gulf War. Mm. No, I, the issue of a no-fly zone has almost been completely ruled out by uh, most major policymakers here in the UK and across NATO for right. various uh, quite significant operational uh, military reasons mm. it would be incredibly difficult to achieve uh, in terms of providing Ukraine and the military with more lethal aid um, around uh, uh, several thousand more javelin and endors are being shipped out over the next week uh, and again something like the Patriot missile they're incredibly um, expensive as a defence system uh, but again we can look at how effectively um, Ukraine are sort of contesting this airspace with Russia and that's one of the major Russian weaknesses in this we've seen this immense hubris um, from Russia militarily mm. where they've not really taken into account Ukraine's military capabilities and more than that the actual resistance has been put up by the defenders defenders are always going to have a natural advantage mm. militarily um, and Russia haven't really seemed to take this into account and they've sort of just uh, gone in an incredibly arrogant and ill-conceived way yeah. um, and that's one reason why we're seeing it almost ground to uh, ground to a halt now. I mean does that surprise you that they weren't more kind of you know strategic because obviously we've been told by many people, both in Russia and in Ukraine, that this has been planned clearly for a long time. Yeah. It wasn't something that, that Putin just suddenly cooked up 10 days ago. Yeah. However, uh, we've seen a, a major sort of military figure in Belarus quitting because yeah. he's against the invasion. We've seen Russian forces seemingly uh, dis disorganised, if you like, for want of a better word. Some of them deserting, some of them finding out that they were in a war zone when they didn't think they were going to one, yeah. calling home, speaking to their mothers, that kind of thing. You know, Russian jets being shot down. It doesn't strike you as though they they are the kind of the uh, occupied force, if you like. No, exactly. The, uh, the situation is painted is quite accurate in terms of just how chaotic it seems from the Russian uh, on the ground, the tactical mm. level. So in terms of the planning phase uh, from the political level with Putin himself. This is absolutely something he's wanted uh, for eight years at least, the, the reintegration of Ukraine into Russian sphere of influence. In terms of um, how short-term they would have planned for their success, they would have, they you know, they planned to be having taken Kyiv uh, within a week or so, which is incredibly arrogant and ambitious. Um, in terms of the actual capabilities, though, of Russia, um, we really see this absolute... Quite a few people have pointed to the militarization of Russia over the last decade or two. But really, that's just benefit, benefited those at the top. Mm. Uh, Putin's cronies in power and the generals. In terms of the actual Russian military, has been almost completely gutted and hollowed out um, over the last several uh, decades of spending. Right. Uh, we can see that on the ground now with just how, um, how poor the military is actually uh, handling this mm. in, in several cases, from logistics all the way to combat air power. Um, and really, we're looking... Um, I came across a, an interesting thread the other day that basically states that there's a lot of general consensus now amongst those in the know that Russia can't really keep up this level of attrition that they're sustaining from the Ukrainians for more than like three or four weeks. I was going to say, what's the cost-benefit mm. uh, scenario to them? Because obviously we know that uh, Putin has, has certainly bankrolled this invasion by the selling gas to Western Europe. Um, hopefully that's going to stop soon uh, mm. or at least if, if Germany can can bring themselves to kind of wean themselves off the Russian gas that would be a big move but I mean presumably this is costing an awful lot of money to Russia and they don't have a lot of money it's costing an enormous not just money but in terms of the the attrition and the effect it's having on the Russian people back home um, there's some estimates are around a thousand uh, fatalities uh, a day um, dozens of tanks are being uh, scrapped uh, and other uh, pieces of military hardware and artillery so uh, it's, it's incredibly costly both in terms of manpower and resources uh, in terms of the end game really anything short of taking Kiev for Putin will be seen as a failure mm. he needs to take the capital install a pro-friendly uh, regime um, and then whether he occupies what part of the country he controls or withdraw to the east that they relatively control in the Donbass right. uh, it's still up for discussion but really um, the, the longer the Ukrainians can hold out in defence and basically bleed Russia dry, mm. both in manpower and resources. Um, it's increasingly optimistic, to be fair, in a position I didn't think 10 days ago, that uh, the tide could well be turning for, for Russia. Yes, well, I mean, I always thought that they would have, uh, to, they would struggle to, to control the entire nation of Ukraine. Mm. One, it's such a big country. It's so spread out, mm. you know, and the dif distances are, are huge. And so in order for you to kind of, you know, take over all of it, um, you need even a bigger army, I think, than Russia's got. Oh, sure. When we look at the population, there's 44 million uh, incredibly angry, largely armed civilians who despise the idea of the Russian invasion. Um, and in terms of 
the capital uh, Kiev itself. We can already see there's already uh, fighting, intense fighting and shelling of civilian areas on the on the suburbs of the city. Uh, and obviously we've got this stored Russian column uh, several kilometres away now. They are um, starting to shape the battle for Kiev. How long that can last uh, is another matter. Kiev itself is, a, is an enormous city. It's around 850 square kilometres, about half the size of Greater London. Mm. So in order for Russia and Russian forces to get over the logistical problems they're suffering at the minute, uh, resupply the forces around Kyiv, take the city or break into the city and take it is is, is going to be an incredibly draining And also uh, then endeavor. to hold it as well, because that would appear to be the bigger problem as well. It's not just taking sure. places, but actually holding onto them, because the Ukrainians have warned uh, Putin many times that if he does ever kind of take control of the country, there will be ongoing guerrilla warfare for the rest of time. Oh, there'll be a fierce resistance, yeah. um, especially in the built-up areas. Uh, if they go into Kharkiv uh, after they've all but ruined it and, and Maripol in the south, and then again, like in, in in Kiev itself, the resist not only the resistance, but like you mentioned, the post almost like a post-invasion guerrilla phase and occupation will be. It's just going to drain Russia incredibly quickly. Yeah, absolutely right. And as far as the air sort of power goes, it doesn't seem as though they're dominating in the air at mm. the moment either, does it? No, that's been one of the biggest surprising uh, talking points amongst uh, amongst like, like military analysts and, and researchers like myself. There's several possible reasons for this. One is it is a contested airspace. The Ukrainian air defence is still holding out incredibly well um one of the initial problems with the russian invasion is they didn't saturate uh with cruise and ballistic missiles from afar mm. uh the critical defense structures the airfields the basically the russian at uh, the ukrainian air defense right. um you know they they, they did a, a few sorties and then they started to go in on land which was incredibly uh, rushed and arrogant like i mentioned before mm. um, in terms of the ukrainian air defenses uh, and again if they get resupplied by by britain and america and nato they can hold out almost indefinitely indefinitely against the um, the Russian air. What we're seeing tactically from the Russian Air Force is they've got a reduced stock of um, precision guided munitions. So they're having to go increasingly high altitude, mm. which means they're more indiscriminate and in targeting civilian infrastructure. Yeah. And so, in, ba- in sort of on, on balance, looking at where we are today, which is what sort of, you know, a week and a half on, mm. um, it seems as though British policy hasn't been too bad, does it? No, to be fair. And uh, this comes, uh, a lot of people are going to uh, draw uh, their own conclusions to this, but this comes on obviously on the back of Partygate and the, the disastrous uh, and, and shameful behaviour actually of, um, of the Prime Minister over the, the, the parties at, uh, mm. at Downing Street. But in terms of his actual political leadership in this, he's united crossbench support for uh, the sanctions and the, uh, the, the the military support for the Ukrainians. Um, in terms of compared to, say, for example, the French, which have just been embarrassed politically by Macron's endless visits. Well, the whole Putin. EU has been a bit of a disappointment, really, hasn't it? It has. And a lot of people point to the uh, the sanctions as, oh, oh, this is the somehow like the EU saving grace. And it's mm. no, there's still incredibly deep fractures mm. led by Germany within EU sanctions policy. Right. That was one of the benefits of leaving, obviously, the European Union. And one of the benefits of Brexit was we were de- able to determine our own sanctions policies. Right. And they've been largely quite effective. Yes, I think so. Well, Rob, listen, very good to see you. Uh, we shall keep track of all of this, of course, as it happens, as it goes. We'll bring you up to date with everything that happens in Ukraine as it happens. And uh, we will be going over there live a little bit later on in the show. Robert Clark, uh, of course, there from uh, Civitas, giving us his view, former uh, veteran, of course, himself, uh, as well uh, as being an expert in uh, warfare over there in Ukraine. Peter Hitchens coming up very shortly. We'll take your calls coming up next. 0344 499 1000. Good morning. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future 
and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're at the start of yet another week of war in Western Europe. When I said this at the start of the show, I repeated it because I think it's important to say it as often as possible. War in Western Europe. That is exactly what is going on. If you're living in Ukraine right now, you are under siege, you're under attack, uh, you're under missile fire, you're under small arms fire, you're likely to be killed by Russian invading forces, you are trying to escape into Poland, some people are staying and fighting, some people are hiding in bomb shelters. It's a war, no question about it. Since we last spoke uh, last week, of course, the Russian military machine, however, has been stuttering a little in Ukraine while still managing to target more and more civilians. As ever, the truth of what is happening on the ground is as difficult to discern as ever. There's some independent journalists there, but it's very difficult to get the truth out of any place like that. When you're working there, you realise how hard it is. What we do know uh, is that one and a half million people so far have fled the country into Poland and points west, and there are bound to be hundreds of thousands more over the coming days and weeks. Coming up, Peter Hitchens is going to be joining us. He'll be telling us why he wrote his piece this weekend about a visit he made to Ukraine in 2010, at which he saw the kind of seeds of revolution there, not so much from the people but certainly from the government in which um, the Navy were talking about uh, changing everything, everybody's name to a Ukrainian name, trying to rid all sort of sections of the country of anything to do with Russia. He saw that as a growing problem and sure enough, he was proved to be right again. We're also talking, of course, as well about the price of petrol and the price of diesel at the moment up and down the country. So far, we've just had a call from Slough in which the most expensive petrol we've found so far is over £2. £2.12 £2. a litre. Absolutely unbelievable. I'm getting lots and lots of you getting in touch to say you can still buy it for one fifty in some parts of the country. We're trying to find where it is most expensive and where it is cheapest. It seems to me there's an awful lot of profiteering going on. And that's even before we start talking about the price of gas, the price of oil, and the price, of course, of any kind of electricity as well. 0344 499 1000. Coming up a little bit later on uh, in this show, we will be talking to Angela Levin, the Queen, apparently saying that she's going to move out of Buckingham Palace altogether. We'll find out what that's all about. And we'll be talking to Howard Cox from the Fair Fuel UK uh, organisation a bit later on as well, because something is going to have to be done about the price of fuel. People aren't going to be able to go anywhere. Doesn't seem to be making the roads any quieter, though, does it? 0344 499 1000. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Much to do, much to talk about and much to discuss with Mr Peter Hitchens, who is here uh, with his regular Monday appearance. Peter, very good morning to you. Good morning. Fascinating piece, I thought, at the weekend about your visit uh, to Sevastopol, uh, the, uh, the the Ukrainian sort of uh, seaside town uh, where there was a harbour, where there were naval uh, officers walking around both in Russian uniforms on the one hand and in Ukrainian uniforms on the other. Tell us a little bit about that before uh, for people who weren't able to read it. Well, it, it was something which very much... Uh, I was had changed my mind, but but concentrated my mind when I I went uh, I discussed with friends uh, what I might do to report on what was going on in that area. Right. It's now uh, twelve years ago, and made this journey in the summer of of twenty ten to Sevastopol, which had previously been a closed city. I had been there once before in Soviet times, but it was a very secret place, being one of the principal bases of the old Soviet Navy. And it, at that stage, was of course one of the points at which tensions between uh, Ukrainians and Russians living in Ukraine were beginning to show. Uh, all kinds of foolish things were going on. In terms, it was as if I, I wrote at the time. It was as if uh, uh, Wales had become independent of Britain and had, uh, had somehow or other, in the course of becoming independent, had also taken over Devon and Cornwall. Mm. And it started trying to impose the speaking of Welsh on Devon and Cornwall. Uh, there were a lot of lot of people in Ukraine who lived there perfectly happily since independence in 1991, 92, uh, who were finding that the 
the, the ethnic nationalism of the Kiev government was was more and more disturbing. Mm. And I saw divisions emerging. And the, interestingly, the places where I went, Sevastopol particularly, and uh, uh, Donetsk, uh, the middle of the Don Basin, uh, which was actually founded by a Welshman, by the way. Uh, yes, and, I noticed uh, that. Fascinating, that, isn't it? Yeah, sorry, we used to be called Yuzovka. His name was John Hughes. Yes. Uh, and I, I also went to a, a, a former coal town uh, called Gorlovka, known in Ukraine as Horlivka, which is now in the middle of the the, the, the awful war zone created since the secession of large parts of the Russian-speaking regions in 2014. The thing was that what I saw then was the beginning of something, and I reported on it, and I, I got quite severely attacked by some people for writing it at all. And what happened not long afterwards was the extraordinary event, which is still not understood or, or, or known about in this country, two years later in, in Kiev in 2014, uh, when the, the then government was overthrown, uh, which I see as being the, the real uh, beginning of the mm. crisis we now face, appalling thing, an absolutely shocking thing, which reduces me each morning I wake to it. I feel a sense of complete despair uh, that there is, there is red war uh, taking place in a European country. I just, it's just so appalling to me that we can have got ourselves to this state. Uh, that I, I just don't know what to do except mm. to try to say we need to be careful to avoid this sort of thing ever yeah. happening again and to examine the, the things which led to it and and, uh, and and see what we can do to prevent it getting any worse or, or being repeated. But this is very strange in, in, the, in Western countries at the moment among people in, in government and parts of the media. A very strange seems to be urged towards war and conflict. Yeah. Uh, which, which, you, once you see it, once you see human beings cowering in amid shell fire and having their homes destroyed, you say, "How can anybody possibly desire war?" But people, it seems to me, do, and I'm, I'm, I'm baffled by it. I mean, I suppose the reason for them doing it, and I'm, I'm not one of those, by the way, um, is that they see some of the footage coming out of of, uh, of Ukraine at the moment, and it does appear that there is one aggressor um and that's what you see and whether or not that is the case or, or we we will never know because we're not there but you know what you when you see ordinary civilians running for their lives and you know getting shot at as they do so you feel like you have to do something you feel i mean the human need to then say let's go after the aggressor and stop them is a kind of i know i, know, I get your your point and it's a very good yeah. one that, that they don't understand what they're talking about because they've never been in that situation no i'm not i can understand that completely and i i it, it, and there's a part of me that sympathises with it, but it's not. It's it, the point. I, I would go back further than this. It, uh, conversations that one might have had with American or British diplomats over the past twenty or fifteen years mm. since the disaster of the Iraq War, I, I felt uh, particularly the, the, the great desire to, to get involved violently in Libya, uh, the great desire to get involved violently, but covertly in Syria, where huge amounts of money was spent by, particularly by the Americans and by some Middle Eastern countries, to foment. A terrible war, uh, which I think could have been avoided. A, a long desire to, 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 to maneuver ourselves into some sort of confrontation, perhaps violent with Iran. Very much in the heart of a lot of policy making and think tankery in the West. This this view that somehow the war is, is is going to be necessary and we should be moving towards conflict. When I I don't think that anything is solved by this. And then, when we get into these into these messes, and when when Russia does this terrible thing of Invading aggressively uh, with a, a, another country, uh, people then turn to sanctions. Well, sanctions are, are, are terribly appealing in, in, in a sort of again a, a media way, but they always, always, always end up punishing the innocent poor. The people who will suffer from this lot of sanctions will be the poor people of Russia, just as the poor people of Iran and the poor people of, uh, of, of, of Iraq, who the, 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 the Iraqi middle class before we started sanctioning Iraq were very, very pro-Western. Yeah. They're not quite the same now because their lives were destroyed by it and they were not our official targets, but they will always, always suffer. People should just think more about what they do. Uh, the, 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 obviously, the, 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 the Russian behavior here is, is unspeakable and unforgivable, mm. but the circumstances in which it took place were created by people who, who were warned of this danger 
uh, that it could lead to this, and they paid no attention mm. at all. And I, I just think that it's, it, it, it's, it's it, in condemning the Russian aggression, one must also examine the background to the thing and say there are other reasons why this has happened. Yes. And to some extent, they have been the fault of our supposed statesmen. Well, that would come as no great surprise to those of us who have studied those statesmen over the course of time, because there's not much they've got right, to be honest, is there? No, there isn't, is there? I mean, there really isn't much you can trumpet. When it's I saw, a very saw, poor record. I mean, when I, I saw Gordon Brown at the weekend talking about how we had to get get involved militarily, I was just thinking to myself, really? Um, I'm not sure we want to hear from you at this point in time. But the other thing, Peter, though, is what would you do now? Because, you know, taking your points as they are, uh, and it should have been foreseen and it should have been, um, you know, something that we knew would happen. What can you now do, though? Well, I think anybody who's seen the face of war, who's seen what a human head looks like after a bullet has passed through it, must desire uh, peace. And then people will say, well, so what? You want to reward these people for their violence or, mm. or, or, or make a compromise with evil? And I say, well, as a matter of fact, uh, the war itself for people such as we are, vulnerable, soft-skinned human beings, is so terrible that yes, we do need to try to seek some kind of compromise. The danger at the moment is we could turn the whole of Ukraine into a permanent war zone, perhaps stretching out for decades ahead, a place of complete misery in which nobody will be able to live. Uh, millions of people will have to have to begin new lives as refugees. Uh, and the, the, the consequences of that will be appalling. So I think it is the responsible thing must be to see if we can find some sort of way of compromising before this gets any worse. And I would urge very much everybody involved in politics and diplomacy in, in, in the West to try and make some sort of effort to do this. War is so terrible. And imagine if it came here. Imagine if somehow or other this country had become the, 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 the objects of the beady eyes of the strategists uh, and, and the, the efforts of our government were being decried as, 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 uh, as, as, as wrong. Uh, international intervention was proposed. No fly zones were were imposed, other people's armed forces were over our heads. Imagine how desperate it would feel to be in any British city while that was going on uh, and think, why can't this stop? Yeah. And the, your, your own, your, your main objective would be to get it to stop. And I think that it's, it's, it's all very well to be tough and principled and say, yes, yes, we must fight on and defeat the, the invader and all the rest of it. But at what cost are you prepared to do this? Mm. Uh, in the end, uh, people... It, there is no such thing as uh, as a surgical strike, um, even if, however hard combatants try uh, to avoid killing civilians, and a lot of them actually do, uh, they will be killed and maimed, and their homes will be destroyed, and their lives will be destroyed. As long as war goes on, innocent people are in danger. So there has to be some argument for saying, can we find a way to bring this to an end as soon as possible? Yeah. But if the way to find that end is, is somehow to subjugate some of the people, um, they may not be willing to accept that anyway. And they do seem, the Ukrainians, as, as I see it anyway, to be a particularly proud nation. They certainly don't appear to want to give in. Um, so I'm not sure that that point can be achieved, can it? Well, no, no nor am I. It's very difficult. And one of the problems with modern wars in, in, in the age of mass media and now the internet, and this is, this is a point made by Winston Churchill at the beginning of the 20th century, so the, the, the wars of, the, of democracies, are far, far worse than the wars of kings because to get wars in democracies, you have to get the people to support it. And therefore, you have to raise to a very high level uh, the desire for, for victory in war, the belief that your side is utterly principled and right. And once you've done that, how do you climb down? It's much, much harder. It's why the first most of the statesmen of Europe by 1915 had realized that the First World War was a catastrophe and disaster from which nobody would, would benefit. But they couldn't end it because they'd all mobilized their mm. populations to believe that it was a great war for civilization. And politically, they didn't dare stop it. So it had to go on for another three years of hell. This is the difficulty we have, which is why voices such as you and me should not be raised in, in, in demanding more war and more violence. We should be very much taking the, the side of peace. Uh, even if people say, oh, well, that means you're weak and feeble. I mean, that's something you have to put up with, honestly. Well, I mean, you've put up with quite a lot over the course of your career, as, as indeed have I. I dare, I dare say we're used to that. But but I suppose if you were going to be, be philosophical about war, I suppose the only one that was really worth winning or having was World War Two, wasn't it? Well, wars are, wars are worth having when you come under attack and you must defend yourself. 
and that that is fundamental. But the the, the, the but what, what I've always said is the, the Second World War was certainly ultimately a just war. Yeah. Uh, but we have tended in in in, in, our, in our writing and filmmaking and documentary making about it afterwards to have glossed over quite a lot of aspects of it to make ourselves believe it was a good war. Mm. I don't think it was good. I think it was absolute hell. I think an awful lot of, of, of good, kind, gentle people were massacred and had their lives destroyed in it needlessly. And I think we have to understand uh, that it wasn't good, even if it was just. We should never glamorize war. Mm. Uh, as people sometimes do, and uh, we should. That's why I I, I reproduced uh, use, uh, um, I, I reproduced uh, Sherman's great quote about uh, war being hell in my article on yeah. Sunday to remind people this was a man who knew war, who fought war, who was a very effective general, and he said, he said Look, please stop romanticizing this terrible thing. Mm. Nobody who's experienced it thinks it's good. No, and 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 and, and I, I think that's absolutely right. But I suppose there does come a time when uh, you have to go to war to defend others, even though you may not be under attack, no? Yes, but, there, but all wars have to end. And, the, and the, 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 the quicker they end, for the, certainly for the sake of, of, of ordinary human beings, the better. Mm. And that means that the whole point of di diplomacy is compromise, is the, the willingness to admit you can't have everything that you want. That the world will not be wholly just uh, it doesn't doesn't mean surrender. But I have to say, I think there was probably a compromise available before this war if people had been more interested in pursuing it. Uh, and there might be some sense in trying to revive it, but I, it, there will eventually be a compromise. Well, there but will have to people, be. Won't how many people it... are going to ha have to die in, in, in between now and then? Right. Uh, for a compromise which will be very similar to the one we could have got now. Yes. Well, that is part of the problem, isn't it? Because you've got <laughs> now, um, you've got the Russian uh, experience, which is entirely different to, to our experience in terms of how they're seeing it, uh, how they're living through it. Um, I was listening to a report from Moscow the other day uh, from the Chanel shop in Moscow, where apparently the people who are very wealthy are still very wealthy. They're still going into Chanel and buying £1,500 bags. Um, uh, to take home with them, and they'll never have uh, any shortage of funds, no matter how much the oligarchs get clamped down upon. Um, oh, they'll be fine. The, the, those people will be fine. The, yeah. the Russian rich will be fine, but the Russian poor will not. No, and the Russian middle class, which has kind of emerged, you might say, I suppose, since the advent of what you might call loosely capitalism, uh, they're the ones who are hurting. Well, they, they are, they're also, I have to tell you, they're the ones who've most, mostly been out on the streets protesting against the war very courageously. It's, yeah. that, it's that Moscow middle class, which was the great hope of, of, of a new Russia, that they might finally develop a, a middle class which could sustain a, a law-governed democracy in, yeah. that, in, in that country. Uh, they will certainly suffer and their position will, will be weakened. And war damages everything good. Yeah. And what about the sanctions then? Are you against those? I'm against sanctions always because I, the, on every occasion when they've been in, in, in imposed, they make us feel good. They look, they make politicians look as if they're doing something, but in the, they're very hard to end once they've started. And I don't think there's ever been an instance of them where they haven't hurt the innocent poor terribly, uh, and in, in in ways which which perpetuate misery for, for years to come. I just think uh, fight a war if you must, but don't pretend that sanctions are a substitute. For war, or that they, uh, or that they can be applied without hurting innocent people, because they cannot. Yes, no, I think that's right. Um, as far as what happens now goes, I mean, is Putin, in your view, now completely entrenched? Uh, can he be able? Can he be convinced to stop the fighting, or is he now somebody that just has to be somehow removed? Well, one of the problems is that we don't actually know what the objectives of this invasion are. We've never known. Uh, did he intend to take the whole of Ukraine? Uh, did he intend to take certain parts of it? Uh, did he intend what is more or less an act of terror uh, to frighten Ukraine in, in, into behaving differently? Did he intend to destabilize the whole post-war order? What is his aim? What, 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 what did he, what does he hope to achieve? Does he actually wish to capture Kiev uh, or does he not? We don't know. I have no idea. I don't pretend to have any idea. And without knowing that, you don't know uh, whether he's he's already failed or not, I, the sense that I get from 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 what I read is that almost everybody in the in the Russian elite is horrified by this action. Yeah. Uh, believes it was the most terrible mistake, 
and will end in disaster. And it doesn't look to me, though it's very difficult to tell, it doesn't look to me as if the Russian army uh, is performing particularly effectively, which is itself an interesting thing. Uh, we, we've been told for ages that Russia is a threat to all its neighbours. The truth is, and has always been, uh, and I have tried to say this from time to time, this is a, quite a small economy and quite a small society. Its armed forces aren't that strong. Mm. And it may well be that they've exhausted their strength, in which case, uh, in which case it would seem to me that people in the, the Russian elite are going to be talking quite loudly about whether M Mr. Putin should remain in office for much longer. Uh, he may well be removed by his own people. It's not by any means to be ruled out. To, to go to war and to fail is the quickest way uh, to losing office in, in, for, for, for any despot. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Well, we shall remain, I suppose, on uh, on guard. I mean, meanwhile, there's kind of the collateral damage, I suppose, that's being done to various sections of Europe, um, including the energy sector, you know, um, the inability perhaps of, of the West to do anything other than just watch and hope for the best, really, which is kind of where we seem to be. Um, it's slightly worrying, isn't it? It's very worrying. And, and that's the other thing about war is it, it always does grave economic harm. It harms civilization. It harms it, it, it harms all the things we're used to, uh, and and it it will also mean people, I think, losing their jobs, finding they're living at much lower standards of living than they than they were previously used to. And it will intensify uh, the already grave economic damage which the which the Western world is undergoing after the COVID panic, and it's not going to be an easy time. War always destroys. It always ruins. It's it's, it's why I'm so against it yeah uh, they, but what can one do i can't you know we are all now at the mercy of events which have been set in train by by this lunatic invasion mm. no i think that is why we probably feel quite so helpless as we do peter thank you very much indeed peter hitchens man on sunday columnist of course talking there about the piece he wrote at the weekend of his visit to ukraine back in 2010 when he saw the rise of ukrainian nationalism and could have seen this coming as he said, we should have done. But what do we do now? He's not sure. I don't think anybody's sure. 0344 499 1000. How about this from Pete in Essex? He says, Mike, I was moved to British Gas a year ago from Simplicity Energy. My current deal costs around £200 a month, expires in April. British Gas have offered me a two-year deal starting in April at £500 a month. £500 a month. That's two and a half times what you're paying now. Unbelievable. Where's it going to end? This is Talk Radio. Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We are the home of common sense, and we're going to try and find some common sense now with our good friend Mr. Cox Howard. A very good uh, afternoon to you. How are you doing? Good morning, Mike. It's great to be on your show. Now, listen, um, 212 pence is about the highest we've found so far. We had a caller uh, earlier on this morning from just outside of Slough, somewhere near the M25. 212 pence a litre for super unleaded. I mean, this is a joke, isn't it? Absolutely right. And it's going to get even worse. I mean, that's we are talking about that now when the REC are quoting average prices 155, one's approaching 160. Uh, we know that this week there's going to be a 10 to 15p increase per litre. Right. Uh, the, the oil price is at $130 today, could hit $140 tomorrow. We have no idea what's happening to pumps. And I've been on your show many times saying the people, uh, you know, we don't have any protection, consumer protection. We have no idea that when these prices go up, they are accurately right and transparent they're the correct prices we are we just have to accept them and this is what the government can do something about well the thing is that i was told by brendan hartlepool who just rang us before the uh, the news there to say that back in the 2008 kind of petrol crisis we were paying a lot less per barrel of oil and yet uh, sorry a lot more per barrel of oil but but yet the, the price of petrol itself was actually cheaper than it is now well, actually, we've done the calculations. The your call is, is, is dead right. What we're seeing is that back in uh, just in 2014, only five or six years ago, yeah. or seven or eight years ago, we can see that we are we're paying the similar sort of on oil as we are now in in UK sterling. We've done all the calculations. We're paying now 10 to 14p more than we should be. And that is purely profit. It's nothing to do with the government. It's nothing to do with the, this Ukrainian crisis, what it is, because uh, these speculators are gambling on this volatility. Right. And is there any way that uh, that this could change? Because I know that you've been campaigning on many fronts, Howard, about the price of petrol, the price of, of the fuel accelerator, the price of tax and all of that. I mean, surely at some point or other, the government has to do something here. 
Well, we've written today to every MP asking them to actually write to Rishi uh, Sunak, calling on him to cut fuel duty. We're still, despite that 12-year freeze, Mike, we're still the highest tax drivers in the world. Yeah. So, you know, we've enjoyed that. We would have been paying £2 now under Gordon Brown's premiership. We would have been, had all the problems with that. But what we're calling for is a cutting fuel duty. And above all, we need some check. We, as I've told you before, we've got off-gen, we've got off-com, we've got off-what. Why haven't we got off-pump? We call it pump watch. And we're getting a lot of support. People like Robert Halfen have put an early day motion in, calling on that on that. And the Chancellor is in with his remit to cut fuel duty, implement pump watch, and I bet you overnight we could have pump prices dropping by 10 to 15 pence. Well, that's the thing. I mean, at the end of the day, right, um, the government collects an awful lot of money from drivers, but do you suspect perhaps that this is all about trying to tax people out of uh, their cars to stop them actually driving around? Well, I'm not into conspiracy theories, but I'm afraid I'm getting that stage where it could be the choice. We're being forced. We, without consultation, as you know, in 2030, we've got to get out of our diesel and petrol new cars and drive electric. That is a, a mandatory thing, which is not actually legislated yet for mm. so we can still fight for it. But we're being told all sorts of things. We've got to get on bicycles. We've got to do all these sorts of things, cycle lanes, ultra low emission zones, congestion charges. Every anti-car policy is being thrown at us. The simple fact of life, people need their vehicles. And as you know, I'm backed by the Road Haulage Association. They are being hit the hardest and they've got no choice to pass on all these prices through to the, uh, the our product or consumer chain where we buy everything in the shops. They have no choice but to do that. Otherwise, they go to the wall. I mean, the other problem that people don't seem to be taking into account here, in the same way that uh, for a business that's got electricity prices and gas prices going through the roof, they're going to have to put their prices up of whatever it is they sell. If you're in the business of moving stuff around the country, like most people are, and if you're driving an Amazon truck or you're driving an HGV to Tesco's or to Sainsbury's or whatever it is, you're going to have to put your prices up to pay for all this fuel. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, it's one reason why the RHA, and we're backing them, they're calling on the government to actually have a a, a rebate, a a fuel user's rebate, specifically for essential user vehicles. And that's everything, fire fire brigade, uh, fire engines, ambulances, and of course, truckers to get their goods around. The point is, the point is, sorry, Mike, the point is this will reduce inflation if they did this. And therefore, people have more money to spend and they give more money to the exchequer because it's more in their pocket. They would spend. Well, this is the bit I don't get. You know, the government seems to be completely oblivious to the fact that this is going on. They don't seem to be willing to do anything about it. I mean, Rishi Sunak the other day, uh, the other month, I suppose it was now, decided it'd be a great idea to loan some people some money so they can continue to pay for the ridiculously excessive price of heating their homes. So they can make the, uh, the energy companies richer by having subsidised taxpayers' money. And this is coming from the same chances putting up national insurance. Yes. And, and, and the cats on our energy bills is going, all those sorts of things. It's going to be the perfect storm for the, the worst catastrophic cost of living crisis in living memory. Right. And, right. and it's going to impact on all of us. Everyone's going to suffer. Not, uh, I mean, it's just unbelievable yeah. not doing that. And we are calling on Rishi Sunak today. I'm getting a lot of support from backbenchers at the moment. Mike, it'll be good to hear. Please, can you get your listeners to sign up to Fairfield UK? And, and it's free. And the more numbers we have on that, we can get you to write to your MP and we can tell you how to do that. Absolutely. And have you done any maths on what it would cost? For example, if you were to say, knock, I don't know, 10p off the price of petrol and take it off the tax. I mean, that wouldn't cost the government a massive amount of money, would it? Well, you've hit the nail on the head because they've enjoyed two to three billion pounds of extra VAT because of these high costs. Yeah. Uh, and if you work that out, two to three billion is equivalent to around about 10p uh, cutting fuel duty. So he wouldn't be impacted on that. He's actually wallowing in a shed load of uh, cash at the moment because of the, high, the VAT. And it's very immoral that he's still doing this. Yeah, it really is. By the way, uh, when you were talking earlier about cyclists, I wanted to find this picture. Politics for the UK has tweeted this out. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, it's a <laughs> sign apparently on Hammersmith Bridge which I think has been shut for the best part of several years. Um, it's got an arrow pointed to the right in which it says, cyclists, please use the footway. And it's got an arrow pointed to the left that says, pedestrians, please use the cycleway. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is the uh, plank, of the, uh, plank of the Day Award for this one. Well, I'd love, I'd love to be on your show to say that. I, that is unbelievable. I'm going to look, look out for that and put it out to my supporters. I mean, it is incredible, isn't it? I mean, meanwhile, yeah. um, the roads actually this morning were a little bit quieter than they were last week because, of yeah. course, we had the TfL strike last week, which seemed yeah. to wreak absolute havoc, not just on the days they were striking, but on the days they weren't striking. In fact, the traffic was worse the days they were working than it was the days they weren't. I can't figure that one out. And the Mayor of London's putting up uh, public transport prices. Five oh, yeah. cents. 
oh, this is really useful, isn't it? <laughs> Get onto public transport, but you've got to pay more to do it. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't understand that the reason why TfL is going bankrupt every year is because they've got about 150 people making six-figure salaries that they don't need. <laughs> I know. It's got, nothing do, it's got nothing to do with the cost of travelling. And, and I'm working for Fairfield UK trying to do this for a big, fat, round figure of zero. And that's what we're doing, fighting hard behalf of your yeah. listeners. I know, absolutely right. But I mean, as far as the industry is concerned, um, I don't see much support coming from the car industry either. I mean, it's almost like these people have gone collectively insane. You know, Volvo have said we're not going to make any more petrol and diesel cars after 2030. Jaguar Land Rover have said the same. You know, we're being urged to drive electric cars, even though they're much more expensive. And even the cost of electricity is going up all the time. So it's not going to be cheap to actually charge your car either. Well, you'll be pleased to know with you, I'm secretary to the all-party parliamentary group Fairfield for Hauliers and Motorists, which is chaired by Craig McKinley. We are producing a report which is coming out very shortly to show you that the cradle-to-grave analysis between an electric vehicle and a diesel and petrol vehicle in terms of CO2 emissions yes. is going to be a bit of a surprise for them. Yes, I bet it is, yeah. Well, it won't be a surprise to you and I, though, because we know for a fact that actually driving around an electric vehicle isn't really any good anyway. But the point is this. Happily, at least, we're seeing Boris Johnson moving away from his net zero commitment. You know, I had Lance Foreman in here last week. Uh, him yeah. and Lois Perry have done some great work asking for a referendum on net zero. They've got some yeah. great support coming in. Nigel Farage is now joining that particular bandwagon as well. I mean, he's got to just leave this all behind, hasn't he? Absolutely. And we're supporting that. As you know, I've been in the studio with Lois, with yeah. you. The, the fact is, Mike, that everyone is fed up. And I think the tide is turning. People are suddenly waking up to realise this is going to hurt them in the pocket big time, everyone, and being forced at this. And you can't believe this is coming from a Conservative government, putting up taxes and ordering us to choose a particular mode of transport yeah. without any consultation whatsoever. So please, please stick with the fight, my friend. Well, you've got to stick with the fight because you can't get around this country unless you've got a car. You know, you try going anywhere by train. People tell me they get cancelled all the time. You know, people don't turn up to drive them. You know, it's an absolute sort of... Uh, you know, sort of lottery if you want to go anywhere by train. Good luck if you can get there. We did a show up in uh, Newcastle. The boys that were coming up uh, on the train had to come about three different ways because the, the main train from London to Newcastle they wanted to get was just cancelled like five minutes before it was due to go. Well, it doesn't surprise me whatsoever. I mean, our public transport system is a joker outside of the cities. There's no doubt about it. Rural areas. I mean, I live in a rural area. I think you you do too as well, Mike. Yeah. You, could you get to your Sometimes. office by public transport? <laughs> Well, no, I gave up. I mean, one of the reasons I got a car was because the trains were so unreliable. And that was only from, from like one hour and ten minutes away. Because about, yeah, every, about every second Sunday when I was due to come back to London, they didn't have it. They'd have a, a replacement bus service, which took about five hours. Well, I repeat my call, please, to your listeners, please sign up to fairfulluk.com. We need you and we can put pressure on this government to do something to save all our lives. Absolutely right. Listen, uh, great to talk to you, Howard. Thank you very much indeed. I got this from David. He says, I don't know about fuel, but I just paid £4.10 for a tin of corned beef. The cashier even said, are you sure you want this? <laughs> and he's, he's not lying, right? He's shown me the actual receipt. Tin of corned beef, £4.10. What's going on? Is anybody out there going to stop this madness? Because we can't carry on like this. It's absolutely and utterly ridiculous. 0344 499 1000. Jazz says this. I was slung off my fixed tariff without asking and charged £150 for the privilege. Still can't get it resolved. Well, I'll tell you what. This is why you shouldn't give direct debits to anyone. I mean, if they have to take it from you and the phone company, that's one thing. Energy companies, I would not give them uh, the drippings from the table, uh, for want of a better phrase. I certainly wouldn't give uh, any gas company a direct debit. I certainly wouldn't give the council any kind of direct debit for the council tax because they'll take whatever they want. And then they'll say, if it was a mistake, oh, don't worry, you'll get it back within 10 business days, by which time you've bounced all your checks and you can't pay anything else. Don't do it. Take my word for it. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.